0: So last week, my family celebrated the fourth birthday of my firstborn daughter, Allison. Because of the pandemic, our family had to gather and do it via Zoom, which my daughter didn't mind because as long as she got to eat cake, she was totally fine with whatever. She's uh, gluten-free and uh, has a dairy allergy, so anytime she can eat you know, those things, she, she's always super happy. But for the rest of our family, uh, we were very sad. Not just because we couldn't gather to see and hug and play with my daughter, Allison, but because her birthday last year marked the last time our family gathered in person. It felt like an eternity happened between those two birthdays as we reminisced about it over Zoom. Time, in some sense, seems to be moving very slow, but actually it's the opposite with my other baby, Zoe. She's a pandemic baby. She was born on St. Paddy's Day of last year. And for her, time doesn't move very slow, but time moves very fast. It may be because all of our days are kind of just this kind of gallopptuous thing where it's just over and over the same old thing over and over again. But for us, looking at Zoe, she seems to be growing so fast. It seems like almost every day she's changing, moving new diaper sizes, learning different skills and going through development milestones. You know, this is a total parent flex for for me to share this, but I had to include this because I had to brag about it in any way. You'll probably see why later, but she's in the 50th percent of her weight and 83% of her height. And if you see how me and my wife are, you know, vertically challenged a little bit, you could see what a miracle it is to see her grow that fast. So the pandemic has changed a lot of things in our lives. It's not. It's not try for me to say that. But what I think it did amplify is that it highlighted our significant relationship with the concept of time. Don't you find that many of our struggles, our frustrations, and our hopes are all time-related? We ask questions like, when will life go back to normal? We ask questions like, when is it safe to visit my friends and family? When can I send my kids back to school? How long will I need to quarantine? How long will we have to keep wearing masks and social distancing? How long will this outdoor sermon last? How did the pastor read my mind? That was a pastor joke right there. If, uh, if you didn't find that funny, this sermon may feel very long to you. <laughs> Which I'm glad that I'm hearing some laughter for. Okay, we're, we're tracking. Man, this is, this is way better than preaching in front of a camcorder. But in any case, the pandemic has caused us, many of us, to evaluate our relationship with time. So let's gain a biblical perspective of how we ought to look at time from a text in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. The sermon will cover three points here today, a poem on time, the problem of time, and the purpose of time. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the reading of God's Word. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write his eternal truth upon our hearts here today. We see that the writer of Ecclesiastes, who has been writing in prose form from the beginning, now switches to a poetic form. And in this switch of genre, it is very intentional when he comes to talk about time. So as we look upon this Talk about time and notice this intentional switch of genres it's our job as interpretive of God's words not just to read what the text says but also pay close attention of how he chooses to say it why does he choose to talk about time given this special way and so let's look at some of the ways we could draw principles of times when we look at the different literary devices that are found inside of this poem First, let us look at the theme of the poem, which shows that time is filled with opposites. If you look at each line, you will note again and again that these lines are in opposition towards one another. Born is the opposite of death. Being planted is the opposite of being plucked out. And the poem goes on and on like this. Now, what does this tell us about time? It tells us that time under heaven, we experience both extremes of the spectrum of life and death, of being planted and plucked, of being happy and sad. We experience both extremes and everything else in-betweens. There are times of birth, of laughter, and of embrace, but there are also times of killing, breaking, and tears. The Bible doesn't allow us to simply sugarcoat time and say, oh, it's all good, everything's all fine, God is all good, I'm happy, I'm happy, all the time, but instead the Bible gives us language to denote that sometimes there are seasons of grief, grief, remorse, and sadness. The Bible gives us language to talk about this. And so the first point that we note is that there, when we look at the theme, that there are opposites that we can experience as well as understand that that's God's design for time. Another way that the author chooses to teach on time is not just with the theme, but with the very structure of the poem, because the theme highlights the opposites, which may lead us to categorize one thing as positive and one thing as negative. Column A is good, and column B is bad, which we can kind of start off thinking about as we look at verse 2. There's a time to born, that's probably good, and a time to die, that's probably bad. A time to plant, that's probably good. A time to be plucked up, what is planned. Okay, that doesn't sound very good. And then we run to verse 3, a time to kill. It seems as though the author had it flipped. Shouldn't what is good be placed in column A and what is bad be placed in column B? What gives this structure? Is it random? No, the structure is not designed for us to say that column A is good and column B is bad. The author is showing deliberately that time is complex. Time can be ambiguous, and it takes wisdom to navigate through time well. If you look down with me at verse 4, they're saying there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Is it always good to weep? Is it always good to laugh? Are there particular moments, or as the author says in verse 1, seasons in which those emotions are appropriate the bible says it's yes when we go to funerals it is most appropriate to weep and mourn and that is considered good it is not appropriate to laugh at something so significant and sad as that so how do we know when is the season or what is appropriate in time Well, Ecclesiastes falls in one of the wisdom books. And as this genre tells us, it's going to take wisdom to navigate the complexities, the ambiguity, and the difficulty that times permit. We see that in in the structure of this poem, that time is not black and white, but again, complex, ambiguous, and difficult to navigate. So we need God's wisdom and help in that. Finally, let us look at the rhythm of the poem. Bible commentators note that the cadence of opposites gives the poem a certain rhythm that is like a person inhaling and exhaling, or maybe appropriate for us, is like the tick and talk of a clock. This deliberate rhythm set by the author shows us that time is inevitable. It keeps moving with or without our acknowledgement of it. The poem describes human activity, of one being with great industry, we see this person planting, uh, building, moving. And yet for all the work that this person does in this poem, he or she cannot shape, speed up, or slow down time. Time, like a clicking clock, inevitably keeps moving. I'm sorry, I, I wish my fine motor skills were, were better so that I didn't have to take this pause every time I switched papers, but moving on. By looking at the theme, the structure, and the rhythm of the poem, we learn that time on earth is filled with opposites, that time is complex and needs wisdom to navigate, and that time is inevitable. And for all of our activities and the busyness that we have on this life, we cannot stop time. Now, this is a nice poem. It's so beautiful, in fact, it became a song by the birds, Turn, Turn, Turn. Maybe you have heard of it. Did you know that it came from the Bible? But what's funny about that song is that the song ends on an optimistic note. That song was popularized in the 1960s, and it was a song that hoped for peace in this world. The song and this text ends on a note of optimism, hoping and longing for peace to be found in the world but this poem doesn't end on a note of peace. It, it, it actually ends and brings up a problem, a problem that we must confront when it comes to time. This is our second point for our sermon here today. Look down with me at verse nine, the problem of time. It simply says this, what gain has the worker from his toil? As said from the Message Bible, but in the end, Does it really make a difference what anyone does? I love that phrase. Does it really make a difference what anyone does? And that's the problem, right? That's the problem with time. We can believe there's a time for everything that is complex and that we're not in control, and yet, what do you gain from living every season of your life, even living it with wisdom? The answer that the author provides is you get nothing. There is no gain found in even managing your time well. Because once you die, it's all over. There is no lasting gain. The author, if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse three, talks about this idea of gain again. And this idea of gain is where can we find significance? Where can we find meaning? Where can we find some semblance of identity, joy, and help in this life? And the author of this text and in Ecclesiastes chapter one says, there's nothing under the sun that will provide you gain. It doesn't matter how famous you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how much your influence is. It doesn't matter the relationships that you have. It doesn't matter the meaning of your job. It doesn't matter even in verse chapter 3 about how you spend your time. Everything is meaningless. Vanity, a chasing after the wind. There is no gain found in any of these pursuits. That's the problem with time. But a lot of us don't believe that. We don't see the problem of time. Instead, we believe the lie that there is gain found if we just wait a pocket of time. If we just reach the next milestone, and if we just wait it out and let time take its course, then we'll be able to find gain. I'm a a youth pastor, and this is a lie that a lot of my students believe. They believe that as long as they just are hardworking, and if they just wait it out until college, until they get a relationship, until they get a job, that suddenly this idea of time and just the passage of time, and as they go through these different milestones, suddenly there will be gain. Time doesn't bring gain. Don't listen to those retirement commercials. Have you guys seen those retirement commercials where they're chasing after this number, their retirement number? And you see them in the beginning of the commercial just grinding, working, saying no to vacation, staying up late. And then suddenly they grab that number. They grab that magical retirement number. And once they grab that number, suddenly they're teleported to Hawaii. They're on the beach, frolicking around in the sand. They're playing golf. They're sipping wine on a cruise ship and life suddenly is magical. What is that commercial but saying to you that there is gain? Just as long as you just take the time. As long as you just wait it out. The message of all that grinding is that it'll become gain. You just have to give it some time. The Bible says that there is no gain found in events and circumstances of time. From dust you were born and to dust you will become. There is no gain, even found after this pandemic. There is no gain found under heaven. The Bible confronts us with the problem, but not to destroy us or make us feel hopeless and lost in this idea and the tyranny of time. The reason why God poses this problem is to build us up. Because gain is not found in the promise of when, but rather in the purpose of why. Gain is not found in the promise of when, but rather in the purpose of why. Gain is found as we look in verses 10 through 15, where we see why God has designed time such as this. Look down with me at verses 10 through 15. It says this, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything be taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what, a, God seeks what has been driven away. The purpose of time is shared in verse 14. The purpose simply is that God has designed time so that we would fear him. God has designed time so that we fear him. The problem we face directs us to the purpose of why time exists and time exists to point us that we are to fear the God who is above all time. The author chooses to point out time to direct our focus away from ourselves and turn to the God who stands again above time. If you notice with me at verses one through eight, there is no mention of God. It is just life on my terms, life under the earth. Notice what the author does in verses 10 to 15, where then suddenly God is mentioned about eight times. We're zooming out to see the perspective of why God has designed time, and it is to show to us that we ought to fear God. We fear and revere and give awe to God because he is different than us. The author notes how God is different than us and why he is worthy of our reverence, our fear, and awe. If you look down with me at verse 14, it tells us that God's work lasts forever, even when our work doesn't. In verse 11, we see that God's plan is perfect. He makes everything beautiful in his time compared to our plans of life, which has been uprooted by this global pandemic and other forces that aren't as, as major as that. God understands the beginning as he does the end, whereas God has put eternity into our hearts where we have this great longing to understand and yet we are hopeless that we cannot. The recognition that God is different than us should lead us to the point of verse 14, God has designed all of this, that we ought to fear him, that he is worthy of our trust, our respect, and our awe. This is the purpose of time which leads to that conclusion. As we think about the differences between us and God, we can't help but feel that God is just simply strong-arming us, saying to us, I am God and you are not, you are controlled and you have all these limitations, obey me, fear me, because I stand above you in time. Is God some kind of cosmic time tyrant who is here to show and show the disparity between him and his greatness who stands above time, and us below, who live this meaningless existence apart from him? The answer to that is no. God could have chosen to do that because he truly is sovereign and good and different than us. And yet, we know that God is not a tyrant because he himself chooses to step into the time in which we find ourselves in today. Isn't it amazing as we talk about the limitations of times, all the sadness, all the mourning, all the grief, that God, the creator of time itself, would choose to enter into it, choose to enter into a place of mourning, of killing, and of sadness. Galatians chapter four, verse four, Paul says that Jesus Christ came, God sent his son in the fullness of time. Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, he has no limits. He is the creator of time itself. He stepped in, and he stepped in for a purpose, knowing that at a specific hour, he would die on the cross. As Romans chapter 5, verse 6 states, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God is not a tyrant of time. He stepped into time so that you and I could know him, so that you and I can be redeemed. I love it how author, Christian author Dorothy Sayers says it, she says it like this, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrow and death. He had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from him himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. If you feel oppressed by time, if you feel as though God is not being fair with the time in which God has given to you, we need only to look at the cross. We need only look at God himself, the Alpha and Omega, constraining himself redeeming us and dying for our sins. If you're not a believer here today, joining us either online or in person, we're just so grateful that you come. And we hope and pray that you would enter into a relationship with this God who cares so much about you that he would step into time himself. If you are a believer here today, let me leave you with two application points. First, it's gonna sound really interesting, but just uh, hold on, I'll explain it. I want you to be happy. I want you to be happy with the time that God has given to you. When you look down at verses 12 through 13, sorry, my page keeps flipping, so let me find it once again. When we look at and read verses 12 through 13, we see that God calls us to two things, and we'll go on to the second one later, but let's, let's talk about being happy first. Verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Verse 12 tells us to be joyful. And I want to just change that for the sake of alliteration and to say, hey, God wants you to be happy. But wait, I thought that the time that we spent here was meaningless. If it's meaningless, then how can we ever truly be happy? Well, the reason why it's meaningless is the reason why you and I can actually be happy. Because just because something is not gain doesn't mean that it is not good. Just because it is not gain doesn't mean that it is not good. God has given us good gifts. And it's our selfish, indwelling, sinful hearts that turns these good gifts of God into thinking that they are gain, that they are... uh, markers of meaning, or their identities given to us. But if we truly fear God and understand gifts that God has given to us for what they are, we could see all the good that we have given from God's hand and not count them as gain, but instead look at them as gifts. Even in this tough season, living in a broken world, and even though our seasons of life right now may be punctured with sadness, grief, and pain, we can look out to God and just say thank you for this great, beautiful day, for our church family, for In-N-Out Burgers, for the source being so close to here, for friends and family, for loved ones, for WandaVision, for every cool thing that God has given to us, we can say, God, God, You have given us good things. We can love things without losing ourselves in them if we understand their meaninglessness. Secondly, and I'll close with this, God wants us not just to be happy, but God wants us to be holy. Verse 12 says that we are to be joyful and to do good as long as we live. You may think that a sermon about the sovereignty of God excuses us from trying and from working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says. We may say to ourselves, if God is so sovereign with time, what is the point of me fighting sin in my life? What is the, what's up with the battle for holiness? If God is truly sovereign and if life truly is meaningless, if there's nothing of meaning under the sun, what motivates my pursuit of holiness? Well, that is the wrong question to ask. Because as Paul illustrates in the whole book of Romans, God's sovereignty and his redemption and salvation plan for us doesn't excuse our sanctification, but instead is the motivation of it. Romans chapter 1 all the way to Romans 11 teaches us and gives uh, Paul gives us this grand view of God's sovereign plan of salvation carried out through Gentiles and Jews throughout the course of biblical history applied to us here today even and in this great span and scope of God's sovereignty over all of plan he goes to Romans 12 1 and says, I appeal to you, therefore, in view of God's mercy, in looking back at God's sovereignty over all of time, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. For Paul, the motivation for sanctification was the sovereignty of a God who is in control. May we come to God in that same manner and way may we look at the mercies of God who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived this painful, broken, cursed life so that we may know him and may that motivate us towards sanctification. Savior Community Church, I pray as we look at what the poem teaches about time that we would be wise given the time that God has given to us. We would understand the problem that we all deal with time that there is found no meaning under heaven apart from God. And lastly, that it would lead us to the purpose of time that would cause us to fear and revere God, to live happy and holy lives for his sake. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you now, we thank you for your goodness and love to us. Father, you are such a good God. And Father, you make all things beautiful in your time. We have a poor relationship with time. Some of us are just waiting for this pandemic to end, and we ask questions of when our life will begin. But Father, we know that these hiccups, these sad, broken times, is to point us to the purpose of why we exist, and it is to fear you. So Father, in reverence and humility, God, may we come to you now here today acknowledging our limitations and father finding freedom in that to know that god only you and you alone are sovereign above it all we thank you for the sending of your son who in the fullness of time was born the alpha and the omega constrained in life constrained on the cross so that we might get to know and have a relationship with the immutable, unchanging, everlasting God. May that spark fear and reverence, worship and happiness in our lives. And Father, we pray that you would bless your church with it. We thank you, Father. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.